Do you know someone who's in a lot of pain and has a condition that will not be cured? You've probably heard of hospice, but have you heard of palliative care? Today's guest talks about palliative care and what it is. And then at the end of the show, we've got a freebie, the five things you need to know about palliative care. So let's dig right in and learn what this service is. Talking with people about how to have a great retirement. This is the Rock Your Retirement Show. We don't talk about money, but we talk about almost everything else you need to rock your retirement. Now, here's your host, Kathy Klein. Welcome to Rock Your Retirement. This is the show where we talk about what you need, besides money, before you retire. And if you're already retired, we can give you some great ideas on how to have a better retirement. Remember, there's things to think about besides money when retiring. And if you'd like to have a more interactive experience, join our private Facebook group by searching for Rock Your Retirement Community on Facebook. Today's guest is Pastor Bill Harmon, and he is the chaplain with the palliative care team at Scripps Encinitas Hospital, among other things. And since most of us don't even know what palliative care is, we're going to focus on that today. Bill, welcome to the show. What the heck is palliative care? And I don't even think I can pronounce it. It is a hard word to pronounce sometimes, and it's also a difficult concept to comprehend at times, but um, basically we're trying to educate the community to know that uh, palliative care is not hospice, that unlike hospice, palliative care can be provided the same time as you're getting treatments at any stage of a serious illness. So what is it exactly? Is it like pain management or is it trying to get better? What exactly is it? Well, it's a lot of things, but it's uh, basically a specialized medical care for people who have serious illnesses. And we do try to focus on relief from the symptoms and pain management and stress, whatever the diagnosis happens to be. So we're aiming at quality of life for both the patient and the family. So give me an example of what type of illness would require palliative care. Well, you might have a condition like uh, COPD, uh, respiratory issues, Perhaps you've been diagnosed with cancer, uh, stage four cancer, or any stage cancer, or you've been uh, told that you have a condition that is not going to be cured but can be managed, uh, that would be a good time to ask for a palliative care consult because you'd receive all the benefits of a palliative care team. We work in teams of the, of, at our hospital with a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, and a chaplain. And is that the case for any hospital that has a palliative care program, or is it just for your hospital? I believe it's mainly just for our hospital at this time. Uh, it is a growing specialty. It's now in 90% of large hospitals that have over 300 beds. Oh, 90%? Um, 90%, yes. Okay. It's really grown in the last uh, 16, 15 years. It's in about 70% of hospitals with 50 or more beds. But it's not always available in the team form because not every hospital system can afford the full team. So we're fortunate here in Encinitas to have the full team component. Uh, in some hospitals, it might just be a, a doctor and a nurse or a physician's assistant and a doctor or um, perhaps a social worker and a doctor and a nurse. It depends on the 
situation. So tell me again what your team consists of, a doctor, a social worker, a chaplain, and... Yes, a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, and a chaplain. And the doctor is trained specially in palliative care, which is a different kind of training than other doctors get. Uh, It aims at comfort treatment and pain management. So our palliative care doctors have a a lot of uh, education in pain management, much more than uh, a typical doctor. So it's really for people who are hurting and in pain? Seriously ill patients especially, yes. So many years ago, I had a client who had rheumatoid arthritis, and it was a debilitating disease. I don't know how much, I don't know if she was in a lot of pain or not. Is rheumatoid arthritis the type of disease that would require palliative care, or would it be more like cancer or back injuries, that kind of thing? Yeah, I don't know exactly how we would deal with a arthritic patient, although arthritis can result in other conditions. But I think uh, arthritis is sometimes part of aging, the aging process, and you get multiple issues going. And that's where palliative care can be helpful in terms of trying to look at the whole patient and what's most important for their quality of life. And so I suppose in the case of uh, someone with serious arthritis, there could be a benefit to a palliative care doctor, especially in the pain arena. Okay. So it's really designed for people who are in a lot of pain. Is that correct? A lot of pain or uncomfortable or facing a a serious illness. Sometimes you can have a a cancer that doesn't present itself with a lot of pain initially, but might down the line. So by having a palliative care consult, you can begin to think about how do you want to be treated as a cancer advances. Uh, This is why in uh, palliative care, advanced planning for healthcare is encouraged. What do you mean by advanced planning for my listeners who don't know what that is? Yeah. Well, when you advance plan, uh, basically you have a conversation with your family and with your your surrogate or agent for healthcare, with your doctor, about your goals of care for how you want to be treated uh, should you face a serious illness or uh, you're facing one how you want to be treated. What are your goals of care? And so advanced directives are important. There's a form called the Pulse Form, a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment that describes exactly how you would like to be treated if you find yourself in that situation. Are these uh, Pulse Forms national or are they just in California? They're in most every state. California has its own form. It allows a patient to talk with his doctor or with his family ahead of time, saying that if I'm ever in this situation, do I want to have the medical team attempt resuscitation, for example? Okay. Uh, a lot of people from TV think that every time you do resuscitation, it works, but it doesn't. <laughs> And so it's good to talk about it with the doctor and see, especially as we age, whether that would be a good thing to do or not. Okay, so you well, can make that decision. You can say, for me, do not attempt resuscitation. I understand. And none of us are going to live forever, as far as I know. We're all going <laughs> to pass away sometime, right? Exactly. That's why we encourage people talking about it. And there's lots of avenues for that, like the death cafes that are now worldwide. And we have them in San Diego and in our Encinitas area as well, just to get people talking. There's a movement called Have the Conversation. It's an online thing that the columnist at the New York Times started. She decided to encourage people to have conversations over dinner. We are mortal. I often tell people we only die once. Might as well do it the best way we know how. You know, I saw a movie called Being Mortal. Have you seen that? Yes, it's a frontline uh, program. 
about uh, Dr. Atul Gawande mm-hmm. and his book, and he's, he's done a great job for uh, palliative care because he's emphasizing to people how difficult it is as people age to get health care that aims at comfort and not just uh, continues all the various treatments that we have available these days because of new medical technology. How could somebody watch that film if they want to? Is it something that they could rent on Netflix or Amazon, or do they have to go to a theater to see it? I would hope it would be on Netflix. I noticed that uh, up in uh, Vista, the San Diego Coalition for Improving End-of-Life Care is offering a free screening of this documentary in the Vista Library, so I suspect it's on a DVD or something. Okay, well, great. Well, that is good to know. So for my listeners, if you haven't seen that film, it is actually really informative. I highly recommend it. It's going to be at the San Diego County Library, Vista Library, on Monday, June 20th from 4 to 6 p.m. Just watch for it. Okay, so I think you've answered this question, but do you get palliative care when you're dying? You can at the end of life. Let's take an example of a patient being brought into an emergency room with a serious uh, stroke, let's say. Then there's all kinds of decisions to be made if they haven't been made in advance. One of them is, uh, do we attempt to resuscitate? Another one is, do we uh, think about if the patient isn't able to breathe, uh, making use of a ventilator or a breathing tube? And another one is, if down the line the patient isn't able to swallow, should there be a feeding tube? Place. So all these decisions are very, very difficult to make in the moment. So it's much better if people can talk about issues like that way ahead of time. Great advice. I'm going to switch subjects here for just a second and ask you, what does a chaplain do and how does that fit in with palliative care? I'm glad you shifted the subject. It can get very depressing. It was. I'm like, okay. We... Well, part of what we chaplains do is try to educate uh, people, the public and the community about the end of life and the fact that there is going to be one for all of us and uh, try to get them thinking about some of these serious issues. You know, there is a country in the world that is called the happiest country, Bhutan. They have a happiness index. They don't take a, a GDP. They take a happiness index. How happy are the people? And it's an interesting fact that in Bhutan, their culture encourages them to think about their own death at least five times a day. And in all their artwork, there's a lot of depictions of death. It's a Buddhist country, and the Buddhists are quite realistic about the fact that, yes, we're all going to die. And it strikes me that because they talk a lot and think a lot about death, that they're the happiest people on earth. Isn't that interesting? We need to think about that. So that's Bhutan. How do you spell that? I'm not good with geography. B-H-U-T-A-N. Little tiny Buddhist kingdom. Interesting. And they're the happiest country in the world? Is that what you said? Happiest people in the world. Well, Denmark comes in a close second. Is that because they have Danishes there? (laughs) And they're delicious. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So that's one thing we chaplains attempt to do is a lot of education. That can be done in the hospital when a patient comes in with the family. If the family hasn't thought about some of these things, we try to encourage conversation with the patient and the family to help them arrive at their goals of care. I do a lot of that. I also try to provide spiritual care of whatever fashion. Uh, At Scripps and Sanitas, we have about 65 different spiritual preferences that people state when they come into the hospital, uh, ranging all the way from atheism, agnostic, no religious interest, to Roman Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran, Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, Sikh, you name it. And then based on that spiritual preference, we try to provide the appropriate spiritual care to make sure that patients are able to continue whatever spiritual practice they're used to in their normal life. Because we think it 
contributes to their healing. So that's another function is to do that. You must have a lot of education if you're able to work with 55 different religions. As a chaplain, we're dealing with human beings. And so it's the human-to-human contact that's most important. And very often, religious or spiritual differences are primary. But uh, spirituality is really whatever brings you joy and whatever gives you comfort and whatever you value. And that can be a whole range of things. And so it's a human-to-human contact uh, between a chaplain and a patient. And it doesn't have to be rigidly religious. Okay, so a chaplain is more that one-to-one contact, not necessarily a religious figure. Right. And we have chaplains in the military. We have chaplains in hospitals. We have chaplains in corporations, even. Uh, we have chaplains. forget the other kinds of chaplains there are. But there's lots of, lots of different chaplains. And that's that's good to know. So let's get back to the palliative care. And I have a question about who pays for it. Well, it's covered by Medicare. It's a medical specialty so that a palliative care doctor is able to bill for his services. As is, And the nurse, of course, is employed by the hospital or the institution, as is the social worker and the chaplain. So it's just like any other kind of medical care. Okay. So... Are most people who are receiving palliative care old enough to be receiving Medicare? A number are. I often joke because I teach a world religion class at a high school in the mornings that I go from the ninth graders in the mornings to the 90-year-olds in the afternoon <laughs> because so many, so many of our patients are in their 90s or above. We have patients 105, 104, 101. It's astounding to me and also very encouraging to me. Because I thought maybe after retirement I might not have too many years left, but it appears I'm going to have a lot of them left. And what to do with them is, is an important issue, as I'm just sure you're finding out with your, your programs. Absolutely. I mean, the, one of the reasons why I started this program was to help people figure out what they're going to do in retirement. Many of us yeah. are living to be 100 years old. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you don't want to sit in front of the TV for 100 years or 50 years. or. That's what I found out. I retired and... Ended up with two jobs. But um, what, what, what did you ask me earlier? What if you're, say, 25 and you have stage four cancer? Who pays for palliative care then? It's the same as uh, who would pay for your cancer doctor. Actually, there is a field of pediatric palliative care that is uh, at the Lady Hospital and also at UCSD and I think Sharp Scripps also. Because there are situations where children have a, a terminal illness or a serious illness, and they and their family can benefit from palliative care. Is the palliative care necessary so that the doctors don't get in trouble for writing prescriptions for narcotic-type drugs? Is that why it came into play, or why is palliative care a necessary field? Well, it's interesting. If you look back to around 1950, 1960, and you look at the trajectory of our lives, we would live to approximately 65 or maybe 70, and then we died. It's a very straight line down because we didn't have all the means of rescue, all the different, we didn't even have penicillin, we didn't have the antibiotics, we didn't have the things to stop infections, and so people simply died. But with introducing in the 60s and 70s and 80s more and more uh, medical technology, we're able to extend life. The uh, issue has become now, how long do you extend life and how much does that contribute to your well-being because there's always something that can be done. And so the patient or the family that comes in and says, do everything, 
might be surprised at how much can be done. And that's not always comfortable for the patient. It's not always helpful for the patient's condition. So we have to think very carefully about what we want to have. So palliative care is there to help us think that through. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I know that my husband and I have done some pre-planning. We're pretty specific in what we want, you know, whether we'd want to have a feeding tube, how long we'd want to have life support, that kind of thing. And um, That's good. we found out, though, that your family member doesn't have to follow what you say. Have you ever had any ethical situations come up where the family didn't want to follow the, the uh, directive of the patient? Yes, we have a number of situations like that. I, one of the things I've been doing for the last oh, 20, 25 years is serving on the Medical Ethics Committee at Scripps and Sanitas. And just recently, we had a situation where the current partner of the patient was making the decisions for health care, but the papers showed that his ex-wife actually had the legal responsibility. Because <laughs> he forgot to change it? or <laughs> he, forgot to ch- yeah, he forgot to change it. When the ex-wife showed on the scene, he had to do some negotiation. Oh, wait a minute. So she was actually going to make the decisions? I mean, she was ready to well, do it? Well, she wanted to make it clear that she was named as his DPOA, as his uh, deputy power of attorney for health care. That's interesting. She didn't want to give up the power. Well, she did, finally, in some negotiation. She wasn't sure that the uh, current partner was making the correct decisions. And that presents, of course, a difficulty for the hospital staff. What do you do when you have on paper what the patient wants? But you have the daughter saying, oh, I know mom didn't mean that. She really didn't intend that at all. And she's standing right there in front of you and demanding that you do something. That that creates a very difficult ethical issue. Oh, and it must create a problem, too, for the dynamics of the family. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. Well, we have a lot of, a lot of interesting family dynamics. And that's, of course, an important part of palliative care is to involve the family and help maybe get them all on the same page with the patient uh, because, as you know, they aren't always on the same page. Very interesting. Well, let me ask, it sounds like palliative care has been around for a long time. It sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that palliative care is for people who are going to live and hospice care is for people who are probably going to die. Is that correct? Right. Think of palliative care in terms of someone with a serious illness. This doesn't have the same meaning as terminal illness, but it also often can. We changed the language over the years. It's been around for probably, hmm, I'm going to guess, 20 to 30 years as a way of, a, of approach to uh, serious illness. It began when we were seeing that there are so many things that can be done that don't necessarily benefit the patient. It might benefit the feelings of the family to think that they've done something, but it isn't really helping the patient or their condition. And it's grown because a lot of people are facing this issue of making decisions. And they're hard decisions. I have a little book called uh, Hard Choices for Loving People. And it goes through all the things that can be done as we approach the end of life, uh, all the way from attempting resuscitation to dealing with feeding and with breathing, and we have all these means to extend life, the question always is, is that what the patient would want, and is that going to benefit them? Is it going to be comfortable for them? 
Right. And if the patient never wrote it down, we really don't know what they wanted, right? Right. So what's the name of that book again? And Hard Choices for Loving People, is that the name? It's Hard Choices for Loving People. We give it out to families at Scripps Antonitas. It's written by a chaplain with a lot of experience. His name is Hank Dunn, D-U-N-N. It's just a little short book, but it covers everything that most people are going to have to make decisions on. And they are hard decisions. It's not easy because we all want to feel that we're doing the right thing. And we certainly, none of us want to see our loved one die and feel that there was something we could have done that might have changed that. I totally get it. You know, it's funny because my husband is my medical power of attorney. And we've had the discussion about what I would want and what he would do, but he's such a nice guy. And I'm thinking, could he really follow my instructions? That's a very good question to ask because very often it's not a family member who's your best power of attorney for health care. Sometimes it's good to choose a, a friend who you know is in agreement with your wishes and will follow those. And someone who's not in the will? <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> that too. Sometimes it's a, a tough responsibility for a daughter or a husband to stand there and agree with your decisions that you've talked about, you've made, and you know everybody knows it. But in the moment, emotions can very easily take over. Well, you could also get some guilt from the other family members if you do follow. You know, if let's say the directions are no feeding tube, and then your your other family members are saying they're starving, get them some food. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And that's that's so unfortunate because starving is totally the wrong word. If we can think back to the time when we died without all these technologies, it becomes clear that there is a point which we all reach where our bodies will naturally shut down. And in that natural, allowing natural death, which is what you decide when you choose not to attempt resuscitation, the other box you check on the pulse form is allow natural death. Natural death is very natural. It's not especially painful. The body does not need food. It would be uncomfortable with food. It does not need fluids. It's uncomfortable with fluids. And we simply pass into however we view the next existence. Mm. It's unnatural to do it (laughs) the way we currently do it. I sometimes use the example of birth and death as being similar processes. When a baby's being born, we never dream of uh, pushing that baby back into the womb. We do everything to facilitate that child to come into this world. If we think about that at the end of life, it's a perfectly natural thing for us to go out of this world and to enter into how we perceive the next existence to be. And so perhaps it isn't the best thing to constantly be doing things to pull us back into this world, but just... Let us go. But some people do want you to go through heroic measures to keep them alive. I mean, it's it's a personal choice, yeah. right? To do that's right, that's right. And if they do, then palliative care would be there to attempt it in the most humane and the most comfortable ways possible. So, is palliative care usually done with people who are conscious, or is it? usually if they're unconscious? Like, how do you know if someone's unconscious, if they're comfortable? There's things you can tell, you can detect um, pain or suffering, and there's all kinds of pain and suffering. There's uh, existential pain and suffering. There's physical pain and suffering. Uh, Sometimes if a person is unconscious, you can tell by by their facial Mm. motions uh, what's going on with them. And if they're 
if they're furring their blouse, for example, that's usually a sign that there's some discomfort, some pain. That makes complete sense. And there's other things that a palliative care doctor or nurse knows that I don't know. Right, because that's a little bit, bit out of my uh, right. You're not a doctor. Uh, role, right? But if I see a patient who appears to be in that kind of pain, I right away alert the palliative care doctor. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, I want to bring this to be a little bit uplifting because I know it's been a little bit depressing talking about pain and dying and and things like that. So, does a story come to mind where you were able to help somebody? as, you know, a chaplain? Oh, sure. We've had many instances of real uh, joyful uh, happenings within our palliative care team. I think of a surfer guy who had cancer, and it was clear that he wasn't going to survive it, and he was a palliative care patient. But he had one goal, and that is that he wanted to spend one more night on the beach. Mm. And so we arranged with the help of uh, a lot of different helps (laughs) to get him to the, the beach and spend the night. And then the next day he went home and died peacefully. Oh, that that is... was a very joyous moment for him and for all of us. Wow, that that's really amazing. Yeah. And I think of another, uh, another situation where a patient always wanted to go to Hawaii. It was clear because of her condition it wasn't going to be possible. At one point we did arrange with uh, hospice care in Hawaii to receive her and to care for her there. But in the end, it could be managed. So we threw a Hawaiian party, came to a Hawaiian church, and had a little luau and some Hawaiian music, and tried to make her meet that goal. So there's a number of goals that you can aim for. <clears throat> One patient wanted to be sure to live long enough to see his daughter get married, <clears throat> and we were able to facilitate that. And he was there, and I did the wedding. We do all kinds of interesting things to meet the goals of people when they're facing a terminal illness. That's really cool. So it's not like, what's the kids program where they, it's not Make-A-Wish, but sort of similar. It's like Make-A-Wish. Yeah. yeah if you can uh, develop a plan for a patient to be sure they are able to experience and fulfill all their wishes before they die, that's part of what palliative care attempts to do. And you can see just in that how different that is than straight medical care. That's a reason right there where if somebody's in pain, they might want to request palliative care. Exactly, yeah. And you can alert your own doctor that you're thinking of it, you want to know more about it, and uh, alert him that that's a a service you would like. In addition to all the other services, because keep in mind, when you come into the hospital, you're going to have a hospitalist, a doctor who cares for you in the hospital. Your primary care doctor is not going to be there. He's going to be back in his office. But you're going to have, uh, if you have a, a lung problem, you're going to have a respiratory specialist. If you have a heart problem, you're going to have a cardiologist. Some of our patients see five or six doctors when they come into the hospital. Well, who brings all that into focus? That's the palliative care doctor. They're trying to coordinate the care and make sure that it's not just the one doctor looking at the liver and saying, oh, yeah, I can fix this liver, but the heart doctor saying, I don't think I can fix the heart. So what's the use of fixing the liver if you can't fix the heart? Sorry. It's good to have someone who looks at, at the whole person and attempts to coordinate their care. We need to get a palliative care doctor on Gray's Anatomy so more people know about what it is. That would be great because then, then they would stop all their resuscitations that are always successful. <laughs> well, sometimes people want that, right? Sometimes people want it. And, and that, of course, TV shows like that encourage it because 
I, I read somewhere a statistic that on TV, on these doctor shows, uh, when a patient's resuscitated, it works about 90% of the time. But in reality, it's like 15%. One five? Mm-hmm. Or depending on age. I had no idea. Yeah, there are other stats that uh, talk about once you go into the ICU, how many when you attempt resuscitation or ventilators, how much of that works. I'm going to focus on the positive towards the end of this conversation. We're all going to live, but you know, the more we acknowledge that in Buddhist thinking, for example, in Buddhist spirituality, the more we acknowledge that, the freer we are to live. And we value life more and we're more grateful for life. Absolutely. And I'm going to end this with thinking about that palliative care can be similar to Make-A-Wish for adults. So, Bill, thank you so much for coming on the show. Would you like to give out your contact information? Sure. If anybody would like to contact me, they can uh, reach me at Scripps Encinitas. My uh, email there is harman, H-A-R-M-A-N, dot William, at scriptshealth.org. I'm also going to put it in the show notes. So that's Harman, H-A-R-M-A-N dot William at scriptshealth.org. Scripps, S-C-R-I-P-P-S, Harman dot William at scriptshealth.org. Right. Scripps is a nonprofit institution. That's why it depends on philanthropy. Uh, For example, the palliative care team got established because of a grant. And any donations to Scripps for uh, palliative care will be much appreciated. Great. Well, thank you. So there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed today's guest. We've created a freebie for you today called The Five Things You Need to Know About Palliative Care. And we're not even going to make you spell palliative. To get this free resource, just go to rockyourretirement.com slash pain, P-A-I-N. Thanks for listening to the Rock Your Retirement Show. If you are rocking your retirement or know someone who would make a great guest on our show, please send us an email at podcast at rockyourretirement.com. Hi, this is Kathy. When I'm not hosting Rock Your Retirement, I'm helping people with their Medicare insurance. One of the times you need to check your Medicare insurance is when you've moved. To get my free guide, Five Things You Need to Know About Medicare When You Are Moving, just go to medicarequick.com slash move. And in the meantime, listen to these cool disclosures. Neither Medicare Quick nor its agents is connected with the federal Medicare program. Medical insurance licensed in the states of California, Florida, Nevada, and Texas, and Medicare Advantage and Prescription Drug Plan service areas vary. California Insurance License 0797566. Oh, wait. I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. Episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. 
I actually don't recommend starting with episode one and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August, actually August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you've just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically, what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show and when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro was a guest. Uh, we, we actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the, the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show uh, when he decided to leave podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com slash support. And it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.